quite a lot. John 10.10, Jesus speaking, he says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. How many of you know that God has a plan for your life? God has a plan for your life. God has gifts and talents and personality and stuff that he's packaged. Is the air con really cold up here? I feel like everybody's abandoned the front seats. Is that because of the air con? Huh? Hey? It's all right. I remember a few Sundays ago, everybody all at once got up and everybody shifted to one side because apparently there was an Arctic blast coming down from this side of the roof as well. But um, God has a plan for your life. God has good things for you. The Bible tells us that God's plan for you is full of good things. Jesus sums it up here by saying, I'll put it together, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in a real simple phrase and I'll call it an abundant life. You can't get any better than that. This is what God has in store for you. Uh, what that looks like will be unique to you and to your setup and to who you are and to your personality and to your gifts and your talents and to the call that God has upon your life. Your abundant life will look different to mine. I believe Mother Teresa lived an abundant life. I believe she lived an abundant life. I've been to Calcutta. Anyone ever been to Calcutta? It's a dirty, probably one of, if not the dirtiest place I've ever been in my life. The streets were lined with bodies. We were, when we went there one time, we were stepping over bodies of people who physically dead. There were dead bodies there, people that had died uh, in the night on the bridges and the streets and the slums and so on. And that's just life for people in that area. And Mother Teresa gave up her life and sacrificed all that she could have had and she went over there and she worked with these people, the poor and the needy and so on. I believe that Mother Teresa had an abundant life. Because that was what God had for her. That was her call, her gift, her talents, everything lumped in together. She was living the dream, so to speak. She was doing what she was made to do and doing it the way she was made to do it, in the place she was made to do it, as the person she was made to do it. And that's an abundant life for me. So when Jesus says, I've come to give you an abundant life, please don't think that he's saying, I'm going to give you five houses and ten cars and I'm going to give you a job where you'll earn $25,000 a week and you won't have to worry about money and I'm going to give you a house on the north shore of Sydney overlooking the beach. This is all going to... And if you don't have that, well, there must be something wrong with your faith. There must be something wrong with your relationship with me because I that's not how it works. That's taking uh, extreme uh, Pentecostal theology probably way, way to its extensive limits. The Bible doesn't teach that, but it does make it very clear to us the plans and purposes God has for us are to prosper, not to harm, to give you a hope and to give you a future. And Jesus sums it all up by saying, I've come to give you an abundant life, a quality of existence on planet Earth that's above and beyond that which people who have no connection with God and their spirit is not alive will ever experience apart from him. Amen? That's what God offers us. You know, the devil has a plan for your life too. Did you know that? Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to take away your zeal. He wants to take away your passion. He wants to take away any sense of excitement, any sense of fulfillment. He wants to take away any sense of hope. He wants to take away anything that would say to you, get up tomorrow morning, it's going to be a great day. We're going to go forward into the future with God. He wants to rob all that from you, strip all that away from you, and make you useless and ineffective for the kingdom of God. That's the devil's plan. That's what he wants. As passionately as what God is about, the business of creating an abundant life for you, the enemy is as passionately about trying to keep you away from that. You know, I believe the devil has two, two plans, basically. Number one is to keep you from coming to Jesus. He'll do everything he can to try to keep you away from God. What he doesn't realise is quite often the circumstances and the things that he pushes you into are the very things that God uses to get your attention on your need for him. 
And if he can't keep you away from God, and I'm uh, looking around this room here going, he's done a pretty poor job with all of us because we have all bowed our knee to Jesus, we've come to the cross, we've surrendered to God. If he can't stop you from coming to God, then the next best thing he'll do is he'll make you lukewarm and apathetic. That's what he'll do. He'll try to get you to a place where you don't want to express that abundant life to the world. You don't want to express that passion to the world. You don't really care too much about the things of God because, hey, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, what more is there? And he'll try to make you lukewarm. He'll try to make you, okay, you're going to heaven, I can't stop that, but I really don't want you doing anything that's going to impact the world with the message that's changed your life. One of the ways that he does that to us in the church is that he makes us religious. He turns a vibrant, living relationship with God into a set of rules and regulations. He turns us from relational beings to religious beings. In John 10.10, Jesus makes this statement, the thief came to steal, kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You know, the thief here, if I say to you, who's the thief? Everyone's going to say to me, the thief is the devil, the enemy, Satan. Let's go back because this story actually begins in John chapter 9, the very start of John chapter 9. Beginning of John chapter 9, it says, Now Jesus... As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him a question. Who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Who sinned that this man would be born blind? You know, religion makes us sin conscious. It makes us focus on sin. It makes us focus on do's and don'ts, regulations and rituals. And the first response when the disciples saw this blind man was, first of all, okay, this blind man's got a situation going on in his life. He's blind. And the understanding back in the day was that these things happen to you because of sin. Everything was directly related to sin. So their natural thought was, well, who sinned that he was born blind? Did he sin? Did he do something wrong? Now that seems like a silly question because he must have sinned in his mother's womb to be born blind. I don't know what mischief you can get up to in there because I don't remember back that far. I have seen, you know, when you, 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 you the, the pictures, what do you call them? Ultrasound. So maybe in time to come, with the ultrasounds, maybe we'll see a bit more of what's going on inside that belly and maybe we'll be shocked. Maybe all along God knew, you know. I remember seeing pictures of, of my kids and, you know, they can lay in weird positions and can look like they're doing all sorts of things. I, I'd never ever thought there was anything sinful or wrong with it, but maybe as science and technology advances, we'll realise that they're in there and they're, they're placing bets on the horses or something and they're underage. Maybe we'll realise there's a certain alcohol content or something in the fetal fluid and when they think the scan, no one, they're chugging away. I don't know. Maybe somewhere down the track we'll realise we've all been fooled and right from inception our kids have been naughty and doing the wrong thing. But I find it hard to believe, this man born blind, that he'd done something. So it must have been his parents. His parents must have done something wrong in order for him to be born blind. And this is the way that religion trains us to think. Let's point fingers. Let's lay blame. Whose fault is it, Jesus, that this man is born blind? Jesus makes an amazing statement. In verse 3, he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Well, hang on a second. Doesn't Romans 3.23 tell us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. So either Jesus is telling us an outright lie here, in which case I'm going to go on the talk show route because I've just discovered the first lie of Jesus. 
Oprah's going to want to interview me. Letterman's going to want to interview me because I can prove that Jesus told a lie. Here it is right here in the Bible. Neither of them have sinned. We know that's not what Jesus meant. Of course they had sinned. What Jesus was saying, though, was that it's the wrong question. I'm not really concerned with how that person got into that place. I'm not overly concerned with that situation. First of all, let's make a connection with that person first. He goes on and he says, it wasn't this one sinned or that. He said, this guy was blind so that the glory of God could be manifest right here. This man was born blind and Jesus uses the words, he says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. When God looks upon people and he sees those broken situations, those hopeless situations, when he sees those people, he's not sitting there going, when I got married, I remember approaching uh, Jackie's father, Ron, and we went up to Bundaberg to visit him and I remember approaching him with fear and trepidation and going, Ron, how would you feel if I asked your daughter to marry me? And he was walking away with a beer in his hand, he stopped. He turned back and he looked at me. He walked back over to me and he put his beer down on his bench and he pulled up a chair and I'm, the whole time my heart's just going bang, 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 bang. No, I don't. And he looked me in the eye and he made this statement to me. He said, well, you make your bed, you sleep in it. Now I knew what he meant. What he meant was, you will carry the consequences of the choices that you make and if you'd like to marry her, you have my blessing. He gave me his blessing, I had a great relationship with Ron. What he was saying to me, though, was that you will, you will have to live with the consequences of the choices that you make. And how often do we think that way when we look at people as well, you know? We look at people and we think straight away, uh, uh, reasons. Well, you, you, know, you know why you're like that? Because you're a drug addict. You know why your life's like that? Because you're an alcoholic and you won't stop drinking. You know why you're like this? Because you're abusive. Or you know why you're... And it's this ugly religious nature inside of us that wants to point fingers and lay blame. You know what? Jesus said, you know what? That's all irrelevant. I'm looking at this situation going, here's a chance for God the Father to reveal his love, his grace, his mercy, his tenderness to a human being. That's what Jesus saw. It's interesting when you look at the way the Pharisees, those who were supposed to be the ones that held the, 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 the very word of God, the ones that were meant to represent God to the people. And when they saw People, they saw prostitutes and they saw drunkards and they saw sinners and they would say, Jesus, don't you know that that woman is a prostitute? Jesus, don't you know that you're eating in a house with tax gatherers and sinners, don't you? And you know what? It's amazing. Jesus tended to see people in a more simplistic way. He saw lost and found. He saw a lost and a found sheep, a lost and a found coin. He saw lost and he saw found people. This is the way God the Father saw people. He saw them as lost or found. And so anyway, this story goes on and this man gets healed. And he goes out and he starts telling people what happened and I don't know if you can imagine it. I can't imagine it because I haven't been born blind. But can you imagine what it must have been like for this guy? Can you imagine the excitement that he must have had in his heart? Can you imagine the joy? He opens up his eyes and he's looking at people. He's never seen a person in his life because he was born. He's never seen a person. Jesus spits on the ground, makes his eyes dirty, then tells him to go and have a wash. And so he goes and he picks up the water and he rubs his eyes. 
And then he's looking in a pool of water. He's never seen water before. Not only is he looking in a pool of water, he's probably seeing a reflection going, who's that? Oh my goodness, I didn't think I'd look like that. I sort of had a picture of like, you know, Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio and here I am, a, a Jew with a, with a nose and my hair's everywhere and that's not what I thought. Of. Look at me, that's me. And he gets up and he starts telling people, can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the passion? The life that was in him to want to go and tell people, guess what? I was blind. I'd never seen in my life. A man called Jesus spits on the ground, makes clay, puts it on me, tells me to wash, and I'm healed. Can you imagine the excitement? What do you think your street would look like if somebody in your street was born blind and God healed them? What sort of energy do you think would be there? What sort of life do you think would be there? What sort of passion would that person carry? And how do you think that would impact on society around them? Well, this is all going on here in this story. Until the Pharisees get involved. The Pharisees call him in. And they sit him down in a dark room. And they turn on a lamp and they put it on his face. Like in the movies. And they're all standing back here as dark figures. Tell me, what really happened? He says, you know what? I really don't have much to tell you other than I was blind and now I can see. A man called Jesus anointed my eyes and told me to wash. And I did not I can see. No, no, tell us really what happened. No, no, this is really what happened. A guy called Jesus made clay, rubbed it on my eyes, told me to wash, I did, and I could see. That's not true. Who did this to you? It's got to be somebody else. It can't be Jesus. He's got a demon. He's a weirdo. He's a freak. He doesn't follow the rules. And he's done it on the wrong day of the week too, by the way. It's a Sunday. Don't you know that real men of God don't heal on a Sunday? They play football. And so the Pharisees start drilling this guy and he's not changing his story so they go, right, yeah, we'll call his parents in because you know what? We don't believe you were born blind. You're telling us the perfect. That's a lie. We'll catch you out. All we've got to do is prove he wasn't born blind and your whole story's gone. His parents come on in. You know what? His parents are getting drilled. Was he born blind? Yeah, he was born blind. Did Jesus heal him? His parents are freaking out because they've got a good standing in the community and they don't want to get excommunicated from the temple. The Bible tells us that. Because they didn't want to lose their place in religious society... They said, well, you know what, he's of age. He's over 18. Ask him. Let him answer these questions. Don't bring us into this. This is is between you and him. And they come back to him again. They say, give us the truth. And he says, I can't give you anything but the truth. I was blind. Jesus healed me. Now I can see. Amen. (laughs) And the Bible says that they excommunicated him from the temple. Because God did something amazing in his life, he got kicked out of church. How weird is that? How strange is that? Yeah, and you go back and you look at the history of, of, of church way back through to the Middle Ages, and you'll see quite often people were excommunicated from church because of something wonderful God had done in their world. It was maybe outside the paradigm of what everybody thought was, was, was right or wrong, you know? A lot of denominations were started because somebody got an inkling of truth, tried to bring it to the church. And the church went, no, we don't want that piece of truth. That's not right. That's heresy. Years later now, we're living in the benefit of it with, 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 with uh, different denominations and so on. But we've worked our differences and we have great relationships and the church is now a massive Baskin and Robbins type flavoured ice creams and you find the one that you like and you go to it and it's a wonderful thing. But back in the day, a lot of this happened because people had encounters with God and were told, no, that's not God and were excommunicated. And that's exactly what happened here in this situation. 
This man was kicked out. In chapter 9, verse 35, it says this. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Jesus was a pretty busy man. Somewhere along the line, he kept his ear to the ground to find out what's going on with our blind man. And when Jesus heard that he'd been kicked out, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? The Bible says when he found him, Jesus went looking for him. Jesus went searching for this man. What an incredible father's heart. And when he finds this man, he starts to discourse with this man. And a crowd comes along and the Pharisees come along and this is what leads into this great statement. Hey, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. I've come that you may have life. Who was the thief? It was the religious leaders who had sucked the life out of him, who had taken away the excitement of an encounter with God. It was the religious leaders that said, you can't do this on a Sunday. It was the religious leaders that came and stole the joy of an encounter with God. They stole the passion that this individual had for relationship with God. You see, religion wants us to get bound up in rules and regulations. And you know what happens when you start focusing on rules and regulations? You lose your passion. Your passion dies. God just becomes another thing that you do in your life, another part of your world. God doesn't want us to be sin conscious. God wants us to be relationally conscious. God wants us to have a relationship with him. God wants us to get to know him. God wants us to seek his face. You know, if you spend time seeking God and being led by the Spirit of God and cultivating a personal relationship with him, you won't need a rule book to tell you what's right and wrong. You won't need a rule book to tell you stay away from this and and you have to do this. You know what religion's favourite word is? It's religion's favourite phrase? A little bit more. A little bit more. That's religion's favourite phrase. You ever hear that voice in your head? A little bit more. A little bit more. Well, I prayed today. Was that enough? Well, maybe a little bit more. Well, I, I, I gave today in the offering it a little bit more. I read my Bible, I picked it up this morning and I I read it a few verses and was that good? Well, a little bit more. You come back to it tomorrow and you go, right, well, right, yeah, fair enough, fair call, no worries. So I'll do a little bit more prayer and I'll do a little bit more Bible reading and maybe a little bit more service in church and maybe a little bit more giving. And then you go back and you sit down and you're feeling good about yourself and then that little voice in your head goes, yeah, that was good, but I want a little bit more. That was great. I, I, what you're doing is good, but I just want a little bit more. I just want a little bit more. And where does a little bit more end? It ends when you're burnt out. It ends when you're bitter. It ends when you're frustrated. It ends when you have so far removed yourself from a living, vibrant relationship with God by surrounding yourself with rules and regulations that you wake up one day, throw your hand in the air and go, I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. I don't even know if I want this church thing in my life anymore. I don't even want to read the Bible anymore. Because every time I read it, all I'm really doing is looking for something I should be doing and something I shouldn't be doing. You want to relate to that? read the Bible and, 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 and we journal and how many people in their journals, all it is is a list of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. 
Maybe when you first got saved, it started out with, you know, the Lord spoke to me. I read this passage and this jumped out at me and I felt like God said he loves me. I felt like God said I was special. I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said to, to, to ring up my, my brother and just tell him that he loves him. I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm going to make it. I'm going to get through this. I felt like the Lord said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but God said to me, focus on the through bit. You'll go through it, you'll come out. And then as the years go on and you flick through the pages of that journal, all of a sudden it's just become a list of, I've got to stop swearing. I've got to stop this. I've got to stop that. I've got to pray more. I've got to read more Bible now. I've got to uh, uh, serve more. I've got to stop doing this thing over here that refreshes me because, well, it's not really spiritual and, and I could be spending that time over here doing... And we lose that passionate, vibrant relationship with God that we first entered into when we first met him. Let me tell you something. What's attractive to a lost and broken world is people who are passionate about their God. What's not attractive to a lost and broken world is a bunch of religious people going through the motions every week, doing their penance, coming to church, paying your entry fee when the bucket goes around, hoping a good show gets put on for you up front. We all clap, we all go home. We don't want that. That's not what God wants. God offers us a vibrant, abundant relationship with him. And it can get stale and it can get stagnant. You know, I love how Jesus treated little children, you know. He'd look at little kids and, and, and he would say, let the children come to me. Remember the, the story where the disciples were saying, now get the kids away, you know. They're just, you're disturbing the great preacher. You're disturbing the, the master. Take the children. And Jesus said, hey, hey, no, 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 no. Let these little children come to me. Unless you become like a little child, you will not see the kingdom of God. Unless you become like a little child, you will not see the kingdom of God. You know, one of the great things about children, and Jesus used this illustration. He called a child to him at one point and he said to a little child, this is all, this is all he did, and this was his illustration to the crowds. He said, the little child come to me and the little child came. Remember that story? He sat him on his knee. Then he uses him as an illustration and says, unless you become like this child, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. What did this child do? No, he did one thing. He came to Jesus. He just came to Jesus. He didn't pray extra long. He didn't come to Jesus chanting, om, om, reading the scriptures while he came. He just came to Jesus. And Jesus said, unless you become like this child, you'll never really see the kingdom of God. He's not saying you're not going to go to heaven. But how many of you know that the kingdom of God is here on earth as well? And I want to live in that kingdom here on earth as well. I want to see the glory of God in my life. I want to see the blessing of God. I want to see the miracles. I want to see the power of God at work here, 2016, in my life. I want to hear the voice of God speaking to me. I want to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, moving me, prompting me, telling me, do this, do that, go this way, go that way. I want to hear God's encouragement. I want to hear him whisper in my ear, well done, good and faithful servant. All those things that come out of a vibrant, active, living relationship, that's what I want. When we get too far away from that and we get too far into the religious side of it, how many of you know that when Jesus came to earth, there were thousands of religions on planet earth? Thousands of religions in the day. God did not send his son to bring another religion to planet earth. 
Earth didn't need another religion. As a matter of fact, if religion could save people, there were enough there. The earth should have been the most holy place by that stage because there were so many religions. So many religions. But their gods didn't offer relationship. All their gods did was said, sacrifice more, give more, do more, worship, bow down. This is the relationship that these gods had to the people. And as long as these people did all that stuff, we lived in India for years. And you go to that nation, every person in the morning, they would get up and they would open up their shop. And there would be like a 20-minute ritual. They would have to hang garlands over the pictures of their god and then burn incense in certain places and wave it around certain places. Then they might have to face a certain direction and say certain prayers and do certain things. And I remember asking a person one time about all this stuff, what, what, what's it all about? And their response was, this is what we need to do to make our God happy with us. Because if we do all this stuff, then our God will bless us and we will have a good trade today. And our message to them was, you know what? I've got a God that says he will look after you and love you and bless you and take care of you regardless of what you have done. He loves you not because of how you perform. He loves you because of who you are. You are his creation with the very fingerprints of God on your very soul. And he loves you for who you are. And he wants you to humbly come and just accept him. Forget who you think you are. He thinks you're great. And he's smarter than you. And he knows a bit more than you know. So just accept him. But it's amazing how many people we get saved, we start out like that, but before we know it, we're no different to a Hindu or a or, or a Buddhist or any of these guys. We reduce our relationship with God to rituals, works, performance. And it breaks the heart of the Father who wants relationship with us. And it kills our witness in the world because nobody out there wants to be like that. People are trying to find freedom, not another bondage to hang over their men. I don't care what you call it. Christian religion is as dead as any other religion. But Christianity was never meant to be a religion. Jesus didn't come to give the world a religion. He came to give us abundant life. That's the message for us today. That's the message for the world out there. Our job is to take that message, live that message, portray that message. Gandhi was once asked by a wise man in India, a reporter said to him, Gandhi, what is the biggest hindrance to Christianity in the nation of India? You know what he said? Christians. His answer was Christians. We speak one thing about a loving God. We speak about a God of relationship. We speak about a father and his heart towards his children. And we live over here in the realm of rule and regulation and fail to tap into that relationship with our Heavenly Father. We fail to believe what God says about us. We'd rather listen to our own feelings. I don't feel worthy. Well, what makes your feelings more authoritative than the very word of God? What makes your feelings more powerful and worthy of of acceptance than the very words of God himself when he says, I love you so much that I gave my only son for you, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? What makes your feelings so much more worthy to be followed than the word of God itself? And that's what we do without even realising it. We take side with our feelings. We take side with religion and religious rituals. We take side with performance and we side with that over and above the very word of God which if we would believe this by faith would change our life. Change your life forever. You're accepted by God today. God offers us an abundant life. 
God offers us a life free of striving, free of ritual, free of performance. If we would dare, dare have the faith to actually believe him and walk that path. Amen? My challenge to us today is this. When I look at my own relationship with God, do you believe that God loves you? Not just here. Not just I'll spread it off religiously. Do you believe in your heart that God loves you? Do you pray because you love God and want to talk to your Father? Or do you pray because you feel like you have to in order for your Father to love you? Do you read the Word of God because you love your Father and you want to get to know Him through His Word because He's revealed so much of Himself? Or do you read the Bible because when you do it, you feel like that will make him love you? There's a massive difference in the way we approach the Christian habit, if you want to put it that way. One comes from a place of acceptance, love and grace. The other one comes from a place of performance. Performance will kill you. Grace and love will set you free and give you the abundant life that Jesus offers. Amen? Father, I just want to pray, uh, Lord, for each of us here, God. Lord, arise, church, Father. We want to be a church of vibrant, passionate relationship with you. God, we don't want to be people that, uh, Lord, live by rules and regulations. Father, your word tells us, God, that we have been set free from the law because the Spirit has set us free. God, your word tells us that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, not those who are led by laws and regulations and rituals, but those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and the daughters of God. And Father, I pray for each of us in this room, God. Show us what it means to be led by your Spirit. Show us what it means to live in relationship with you. God, speak to our hearts, Father. God, open up our eyes to understand the great love that you have for us, Lord. And that out of a revelation of your love for us, that all these other things would flow because we love you. Not because we've done stuff, but because you first loved us. And God, that's the prayer I pray for each of us in this place this morning, God. Father, I commit us all into your hands. God, I pray this week you'd be speaking to us, you'd be leading us, guiding us. Uh, God, entering into that relationship that we so eagerly desire, one of life and life abundantly, Father. God bless each of us as we leave and we go into the rest of this week, into the rest of the work week, God. Give us opportunities to share your goodness with those around us, Father. And we just say again, Father, we love you and we thank you for the cross in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well.